Hello, and welcome to the Sawyer Seminar Bites podcast, hosted by the Boston University Center on Forced Displacement. This podcast showcases talks hosted by our Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes, a grant generously funded by the Mellon Foundation. So without further ado, I'm very pleased to be introducing our first speaker today, uh, joining us from England, who is uh, David Owen, uh, who is Professor of Social and Political Philosophy at the University of Southampton, uh, and who will be giving a talk today titled Border Externalization and the Paradoxes of Humanitarianism. Thanks, and thanks very much for inviting me. Pleasure to, to kind of be here. Um, Right, so because I'm first up, I thought I would um, at least start by trying to kind of say something about, you know, why border externalization? Why this particular governmental uh, practice? What's its rationality? And what grounds its claim to legitimacy? So let's start with um, David Fitzgerald from his lovely book, Refuge Beyond Reach. Uh, use of the medieval fortress as a giving us vocabulary for forms of border externalization or techniques of remote control. So Fitzgerald just identifies a range, domes, caging, buffering, moats, barbicans. These are all different, as it were, you know, techniques that can be used to as it prevent people uh, reaching the territory of the state. Now, what I want to do, the questions I want to address is, as I said, why border externalization? What's the rationality of it? What grounds its claims to legitimacy, which shift after 1951 and shift again after 1967? What normative and institutional resources does this practice draw on? And what's required to address it and the sources that generate it? So let me just quickly, and this is going to be pretty quick and sketchy, um, identify uh, some background reasons. Firstly, reasons of the sovereign state as a political form. Secondly, logics of territoriality. Third, laws of refuge. And fourth, ethics of humanitarianism. And I'm gonna sort of suggest to you that it's actually through the conjunction of all four of these that we find the rationality of border externalization emerge. So very quickly, reasons of the sovereign state for the political force. So there is, if you like, a dominant picture about states and state legitimacy as characterized by positive internal criteria. States look after their citizens, deliver their rights, particularly human rights, but also civic rights, and a negative external criterion. As long as states don't actively breach the human rights of other people, that's fine. That's the limit of their responsibility. And that picture of state legitimacy gives rise to um, a kind of way of thinking about the logic of the state in its relationships to outsiders that's nicely expressed by Matt Gibney. He says, look, Above all else, the state is fundamentally an answer to the question of who's responsible to whom in the modern world. States are responsible to their own citizens. The survival of the state as an entity over time rests, moreover, on its ability to portray itself convincingly as an answer to such a question. 
As a consequence, the claims of outsiders are assessed by states, including liberal democratic ones, through a logic that depreciates the interests and need of outsiders, a logic that's extremely sensitive to the potential damage to its own authority involved in forcing its citizens to incur costs for the sake of strangers. So I can think the dominance of this kind of picture of the state and the state's, if you like, self-perception in terms of it uh, is the first kind of background source with which we need to be concerned. Second, logics of territoriality. Um, under the territorial principle of jurisdiction, states are responsible for all persons within the jurisdiction, so on its territory. That has a special issue, for, raises a special issue for democratic states uh, um, to do with kind of uh, naturalization. But conversely, if non-citizens are not on its territories, then the state's not responsible for them, except insofar as it has to, as it were, not actively breach their human rights. Okay, third source, laws of refuge. So if we think about refugee protection as a cooperation game, we run straight into the kind of standard collective action problem. If refugee protections are global public good, then collective action problems arise. So we can see the Refugee Convention as a partial and inadequate response to this. The key norm is that of non-refoulement, and it gives rise, as Alex Betts has pointed out, to what we might call a north-south suasion game. Now, the current suboptimal outcome of that, that Alex Elenikov and I expressed as follows. There's be, been an unholy grand bargain at the heart of the international refugee regime. States of the global south take the vast majority of refugees. In so long as states of the global north provide, albeit inadequate, financial support and don't press human rights concerns. We might note here that the proximity to refugee production, like refugee production itself, is typically a product of durable patterns of global domination and disadvantage that are part of the continuing afterlives of European imperialism. Consequently, for the most part, those states who produce are in pro close proximity to and bear the burdens of significant refugee flows of post-colonial states. I'm now going to just set that aside because Iten uh, will speak much better to it than I could. Okay, fourth element, ethics of humanitarianism. Almost immediately the Refugee Convention was signed in 51, it was subject to a kind of moral arbitrariness challenge. Surely people said, look, the differentiation of those whose lives are endangered by persecution and those whose lives are endangered by the breakdown of public order seems to lack moral grounding. So too does the differential treatment of those outside and inside the state in question or whose lives are threatened by natural disasters rather than human ones. So humanitarianism immediately poses this challenge that, you know, the terms of the Refugee Convention are just morally arbitrary. That gives rise to a moral solidarity claim. We ought to approach all these persons as having the same kind of claim on us, okay? And while the conditions they're in may affect how we can help, help them, insofar as we can, we should do so. And so we get over the course of the last 60 years, 
something like a kind of shift or a kind of humanitarianization of the figure of the refugee, who rather than being a political subject of civic and human rights, becomes a humanitarian subject of needs, one whose minimal or basic human rights should be respected, subsistence, primary education, basic health care. Um, but, you know, who isn't, uh, as the convention had it, immediately to be situated in a position between the most favoured immigrant group and citizens with the rights of so, some of the rights of citizens and some of the rights of the most favoured immigrant group. At the same time, of course, this leads to a significant expansion of the potential subjects of protection. So take those four things together and we can understand the rationality and legitimacy of border externalization seen from the state's point of view. Humanitarianism expands the category refugee and legitimates the idea that as long as refugees are provided with basic needs in a camp, say, and are safe and protected, that's sufficient. Non-refoulement as the core norm makes territorial presence the critical factor. Territoriality makes access to permanent residence or citizenship a function of presence. And states have an interest in controlling exposure to protection to their, their, their exposure to protection responsibilities. So the combination of those things leads to border externalization as in principle a legitimate mechanism to avoid the potential damage to its own authority involved in its citizens being able to make, incur visible costs, the presence of refugees for the sake of strangers. Much easier to get finance for protection elsewhere through the governmental books. So if we think about why states might, you know, like this governmental technology of border externalization and why they might think about it as a legitimate technology, then I think the combination of the character of the international refugee regime, the fact that territoriality is the principle of jurisdiction and the spread of a kind of humanitarian conception of refugees have combined to push in this direction. Now, as um, David Fitzgerald points out, particular ways in which it has been developed have relate to particular refugee crises. But I'm concerned in a sense that what makes the rationality appealing and apparently kind of legitimate, or at least having a claim to legitimacy from a state's point of view. So we can see uh, border externalization and then as exploiting the limits of non-refoulement. So, you know, as commented in relationship to the EU currently, um, the system as currently devised appears to imply that while pre-entry controls can operate extraterritorially, protection obligations arise only if potential beneficiaries present themselves at the physical borders of the EU, and that no distinction is met necessary at the pre-border stage between refugees and other migrants. It seems to be understood that um, pre-entry controls can be conducted independently from their differential impact on protection seeker rights. 
So in this line, Heilbronis argued, it's doubtful whether the principle of non-refoulement implies a general duty of states to organize their entry and immigration visa and transport legislation in such a way that potential political refugees may use their right to seek and enjoy asylum effectively. He opines a legal duty arises only when and insofar as a potential refugee has come within the scope of the territorial jurisdiction of the state. So what are the effects of this, as it were, rationality and practice for refugees? Well, as Serena Parrick nicely puts it uh, in her recent book, No Refuge, refugees essentially are left with the following choice set. Typically, long-term residents in a refugee camp with very limited opportunities for shaping one's life, Precarious lives in urban or peri-urban settings with a potentially wider range of opportunities, but significant risks of exploitation, domination and marginalization, or dangerous journeys to advantaged states. Some re refugees, very unsurprisingly, take up the third option, that of dangerous journeys. Given the emergence of this travel market, that uh, providers of border crossing services arise to meet demand. That's what one would expect. So the rise of the smuggling industry is then best seen as a response to the failure of the refugee protection regime to provide access to forms of protection in which refugees can coherently understand themselves as effective social and political agents, able to navigate their environment and shape the development of their lives without incurring unreasonable costs. So that's all the background stuff. Bitter ironies. So the effect of this development is not only that it increases the dangers of refugee journeys, given that the illeg illegality of border crossing services means their supply is most likely to draw in providers already operating in zones of criminality. But also, and this is what I'm going to focus on for the remainder of my time, that this fact is in turn taken up and mobilized as a humanitarian reason for further intensification of border externalization policies and technologies of remote control. So this brings us to what we might call justificatory in humanitarianism. And here's a first example. So the Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott in 2015, as part of his response to the UN rapporteur's charge that uh, uh, Australia's refugee policy was in breach of its international commitments, said the following. The most humanitarian, the most decent, the most compassionate thing you can do is stop these boats. Because hundreds, we think about 1,200 in fact, drowned at sea during the flourishing of the people's smuggling trade under the former government. This rationale is one that's been embraced most recently by the EU in relationship to Mediterranean sea crossings and by the UK in relationship to boats crossing the Channel. Now, it would be easy and perhaps not wrong to dismiss this as simply cynical hypocrisy. 
but that response as far as it while it may be okay as far as it goes doesn't go very far instead i want to kind of think about what is it about the language of humanitarianism that lends itself to this kind of justification so i want to do this by drawing attention to the fact that humanitarian reason is situated within and involves the negotiation of a tension between two distinct justificatory poles, which we can gloss as follows. A commitment to the view that humanitarianism means acknowledging that the suffering of each and every person matters in and of itself, and a commitment to the view that humanitarianism means aiming at the reduction of overall suffering. So we might see the former as one that pictures humanitar the humanitarian ideal as a constraint on action, and the latter as a commitment that pictures the humanitarian ideal as a goal to which action is oriented. But this gives rise then to two different forms in which that tension can be mobilized uh, to support uh, border externalization policies. So here's the first form. Humanitarian government, operating under the picture of humanitarian ideal as constraint, all lives matter equally, may generate outcomes that are, in terms of the picture of the humanitarian ideal as a goal, bad. One way, you know, overall suffering goes up. One way of negotiating this tension is to construct a distinction between naive and realistic modes of humanitarianism. So this makes available a form of argument in which certain kinds of humanitarian practices can be represented as self-defeating. So in the context of refugees, this takes the form of the argument that, for example, the operation of humanitarian search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean serves as a pull factor that increases the numbers of people who are willing to undertake the journey with all the suffering and risks of death that it involves, and hence is liable to increase overall suffering and deaths. I mean, that complaint was already made about the um, Italian Mar Nostrum policy in 2013 to 14, and has since been mobilized against uh, humanitarian NGOs engaged in uh, search and rescue. So Frontex wheel this out on a regular uh, uh, basis. Second form, humanitarian government directed solely at the goal of reducing overall suffering fails to acknowledge the importance of the distinction between persons, that each person matters. So hence it's liable to produce outcomes that are from the standpoint of the picture of the humanitarian ideal as constraint wrongful. One way of negotiating this tension is the construction of justifications for why some should be treated differently to others. That is drawing a set of normative distinctions designed to distinguish those seeking irregular entry from the wider population of refugees and offering a moral just, justification of differential treatment in the service of reducing overall suffering. So the classic examples of this are the Australian invocation of the idea that people who arrived by boat were queue jumpers because Australia had its fixed quota of refugees and they were trying to kind of get in 
on another route. And the UK currently in relationship to boat crossing from France. So a key part of this strategy is introducing a hierarchy into the field of refugee protection that distinguishes those who conduct themselves appropriately according to what are presented as the proper norms and those whose conduct breaches such norms. In neither case does this hierarchy simply deny that the latter are entitled to humanitarian protection. Rather, it exploits it as a re reason for the denial of protection here by presenting protection here, Australia, UK, as rewarding wrongful conduct and doing so in a way that encourages others to imitate it, where this risks the, increases the risk of outcomes that are bad from a humanitarian perspective. So what we have then are these two ways in which the tension within humanitarianism, constitutive tension within humanitarianism, lends itself straightforwardly to kind of a legitimating discourse in relationship to border externalization. This should not surprise us. Humanitarianism is the language of the advantage speaking to the disadvantage. It's a feature of human, humanitarian government, as Didier Fassan points out, that it's characterized by an internal tension between a relationship of inequality domination and a relation of solidarity assistance. Border externalization is a practice of the advantage towards the disadvantaged, aimed at sustaining opportunity hoarding, that can mobilize that language of humanitarianism uh, against the background of the principle of territorialism to legitimate its uh, activity. Okay, what does this need in terms of response? And I'm very near the end. Uh, any response needs to have two levels, addressing the immediate problem and addressing the sources that generate the problem. So in terms of the immediate problem, um, I'm kind of broadly in favor of a view that says, you know, duties kick in at the point that you're subject to state power, not the point at which you reach the territory of the state. And a strong norm of non-cooperation with border externalization by other actors. But that by itself doesn't get rid of, if you like, the sources that generate uh, and seek to legitimate the practice of border externalization. There, it seems to me, we need to reframe the question of the legitimacy of the state in global system terms. And you can kind of see responsibility to protect, sustainable development goals, the way Joe, Karens, and I, and Gillian Brock have tried to think about refugee uh, syst systems um, in that those terms. Maybe introducing an international form of citizenship ship via the UN with ref where refugees have free movement rights and carry, as it were, portable uh, rights of welfare and stuff with them wherever they go. And most fundamentally, perhaps, displacing the politics of compassion, humanitarianism, with that of dignity, where it's not compassion for the suffering of another, but indignation of the, at the treatment of uh, the other, which is the main driver. To embrace, as it were, the fact that dignity is the language of the disadvantaged speaking 
to the advantaged, not humanitarianism. And I'll stop there. Thank you. For more information on the Sawyer Seminar series on border regimes and for upcoming events, go check out the Sawyer Seminar website, linked in the description. This Sawyer Seminar series is made possible with funding support from the Mellon Foundation. This podcast is produced by Boston University's Center on Forced Displacement in collaboration with all members of the team.